Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Well, I am so excited to jump into a new series today. Um, And we've entitled it Foodies, as you just saw. You know, Jesus never missed a divine appointment. He always was ministering. And there are so many times in which Jesus taught and ministered to those he was sharing a meal with. And what a great pattern if you think about it. Eating is one of those things that transcends ethnicities, cultures, beliefs, religions, politics, personalities. No matter who you are, you have to eat at some point. And how many are glad that God has given us the ability to eat? Some of you aren't telling the truth because I can see that you like to eat. (laughs) Because you're alive, not because you're big. Everyone's a foodie on that level. And again, Jesus used these moments, regardless of whether they were impromptu or planned, to minister to those he was sharing the mealtime with. Over and over and over again, we see this. He taught so many eternal truths over those dining room tables. So we are going to spend the next nine weeks going through the book of Luke, and we're going to take a closer look at what Jesus taught to the foodies. And I know there's other instances. There's not just nine. There is more instances involving food that we could talk about. We're just going to hit the nine of them today, or this, this series. And we're going to look at it a little bit closer what Jesus taught to the foodies he found himself eating with. His lessons were relevant then, and they most certainly are relevant for us today. So I'm going to do something a little different today. Would you just stand up, everybody? We're going to pass out some food. No, just kidding. I'm not going to pass out any food. Stand up. We're serving spiritual steak today, right? And I want us to read this scripture together, and it's going to be up on the screen, but let's read it as one body today. We just got done off a series of unity, but it's a little bit longer portion of scripture, but I want you to read it and say it out loud so it gets down in your spirit. You'll hear it and you'll speak it, and that's, that's better than just hearing it, right? So let's read this together. Luke 5, 27 through 32, and it says this. After that, he went out and looked at a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began following him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling to his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It was not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the groom fast while the groom is with them. Can you? But the days will come, and when the groom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it in an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new, and the patch from the new garment will not match the old. And no one pours new wineskins into old wineskins, or new wine into old wineskins, sorry. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one, after drinking old wine, wants new, for he says, the old is fine. Lord Jesus, I pray your word would just be poured out into our hearts today that we could take out the truth that it has, that it contains for us today. Lord, that not only we could see the truth that it was for those who first heard it, but God, that it would be, it would, it, it would be relevant for us today in a way that's special and personal and real. God, we give you this time in Jesus' name, amen. You could sit down. Thanks for reading that. I know that was a lot, but how dare us read the Bible in church, you know, <laughs> together. I think that is awesome. 
So I'm gonna, or, I've organized this thing a little bit differently than I normally preach, and I hope you can follow along, but I wanna start with some foodie facts that, are, that were in that portion of, of scripture we just read. And we're gonna start with the different foodies. So we're gonna start with the, the tax collector, right? The tax collectors. And as most of you know, the Jewish people, they lived under Roman control during the time of Jesus. They were subject to their laws, and undoubtedly they felt oppressed by their polytheistic views and beliefs. Polytheism, by the way, is, is the belief that, there, that there's more than one God. There's multiple gods. That's polytheism. And the Jews hated the fact that they were under this Roman control. They were a nation that lived under the authority of another nation's rule. And they didn't like it. And the Romans had a pretty elaborate system for collecting taxes from the foreigners who lived within their borders. And there were different types of tax collectors. This was a complicated system. It, it might even be as complicated as a 62,000 page tax code, but I don't know. <laughs> the Gabai, or Gabay, I guess is how it's pronounced, they collected taxes on land, property, and income. And then you had the Mooks. These are the different kinds of tax collectors. The Mooks collected taxes on everything else that the Gabay did not. They would set up their little tax booths, these are the Mooks, along the roads, they would set them up along bridges, they would put them at docks, basically anywhere where, and they would tax anyone or anything that moved along those, those paths or those roads. There were two types of Mooks, the great Mooks and the little Mooks. It's the truth. The great Mooks had contracts with Rome, and the little Mooks did the actual collecting of the taxes. They did the dirty work for the great mooks. Jewish tax collectors were considered to be traitors by the Jews. And you have to understand this to understand the story. Rome had a fixed amount that was required to be paid and then anything collected above and beyond that was kept by those tax collectors. And of course, this led to many abuses of power. We understand what abuses of power are, don't we? Levi was a Jew, and he was a little mook. He was considered a traitor, an extortioner, a greedy, spiritually unclean, abusive sinner by his people. Jewish tax collectors were not allowed to serve as witnesses or as judges in the Jewish courts. In fact, they were so hated that Jewish tax collectors weren't even allowed to participate and, and go and be a part of the synagogue and all that they did. They were kicked out of church because they were so bad. In the Jews' eyes, they were in the same category as murderers, as thieves. And Levi was a Jew by birth, which was not only supposed to be his religion, which he probably wasn't following, but it, it was also his ethnicity. That's the unique thing about the Jewish people. He was a Jewish person. He was living under Roman control like all the other Jews, yet he worked for the Roman government collecting taxes from his own people. Taxes that funded the very government that was oppressing his people. The Jewish community saw him, again, as a traitor, and to make things worse, he, like the other little mooks, would overtax them and live comfortably off of it. You talk about an unfair system. You talk about a guy who had authority, who took advantage of it, and was unfairly treating his own people. This was Levi. Tax collectors like Levi, they lived lavishly, and they lived off the suffering of their own people. This is a bad dude. Levi was not a good man. He had probably even a guilty conscience because of what he was doing and how he was living. They were so unfair and cruel in their methods, they, they abused, these tax collectors abused their authority and left those being taxed without any option. They just had to pay it. There was no choice in the matter. It wasn't like IRS agents of today with their random audits. And it wasn't even, even with their 80,000 uh, plus uh, newly hired IRS agents. 
It wasn't like that. It wasn't like we experience today, even though we feel a little bit of this. It was more like a mafia-enforced shakedown. The Romans were a thug regime, and these guys went collecting for them. Remember Rocky before he fought, Rocky Balboa? He's like, what did he do for a living? He was collected. I was collecting for the mafia, right? Some of you don't know that, but you got to be a Rocky fan to understand that. <laughs> it's kind of what Levi was doing. He was collecting for this thug regime. And that's why these guys were so hated. They were the worst of the worst, horribly cruel, heartless people who built their wealth by stealing from the poor, and it was legal, completely legal, and nobody could do anything about it. So that's some foodie facts on the tax collectors, but where's the beef here? Where's the beef or spiritual meat that Jesus served up to these tax-collecting foodies? And, I, I just, and I, as I read this, and I just want to hone in on something here, it's, it's right here. There is no such thing as being too far gone. No such thing as being too far gone. We just read in the scripture how Jesus came across Levi, and without any discussion at all, and how many know Jesus knew who Levi was and what he was doing? And he said to him, follow me. That's all he said. Levi then invites Jesus to his house and throws him a large reception. And he invites a bunch of his tax collector friends. Some historians even believe that, that he could have had up 15 to up to 30 people in his house, all sinners, all tax collectors, depending on the size that Levi's house was. It must have been an amazing thing for Levi and his buddies being so hated. Just think about this for a moment. They were so hated by their own people because of what they did. Again, they probably had guilt because of what they did for a living. But to now have this popular teacher, this one who all the Jews have been talking about, this rabbi, he, comes, he walks along and he sees him and he says, come on, follow me. Way out of the ordinary. And it must have spoken volumes to Levi and his tax collector friends because for the first time in a long time, they felt noticed, not hated, and accepted and seen by one of their own people. Jesus was a Jew. And he said, follow me. Yes, they were doing horrible things as tax collectors, but Jesus invited them to follow him. And the result was the sinner inviting Jesus over to his house to eat, which I think is so cool. Pastor Donnie told us a couple weeks ago how Jesus made a place at the table for Zacchaeus. But here we see the sinner... Levi, along with his friends, making a place for Jesus at the table. Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house, but here Levi is inviting Jesus over. I love that contrast. And these tax collectors knew how terrible they were. You know, what sinner doesn't know how bad they are? Right? How many know when you sin that it's sin? I mean, come on, show of hands. How many know? What sinner doesn't know? You know, God created us with this, with this standard of behavior way deep down inside that helps us understand right from wrong. Is right from wrong, is knowing right from wrong just something we learn from our parents and from school and from kindergarten and from all the, all the different rules we, 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 we come across in our life? Is that where we get right and wrong? I, and I don't, I don't believe so. I believe that all helps, and it undergirds the right and wrong that we feel inside. But God creates us with the standard of behavior that, that's un, it's undeniable. It doesn't matter what society, what culture you go into. If you go back far enough in history to all the cultures, they always believe killing their own is wrong. Even cannibals believe killing their own is wrong. Why is murder wrong with all peoples who never even talk to each other, culturally speaking? Why is it? Because God placed this, this thing inside of us. It's like a mechanism that says, that's wrong, that's right. And we know it. Sinners know that they're sinners. Amen? Are you awake today? They do, they know it. They know when they do wrong. We know when we do wrong. They knew and Jesus, these tax collectors knew and, and Jesus noticed he didn't start in on them with, with how rotten they were. He didn't say, um, 
hey, buddy, you're a sinner. Um, let me point something out to you, Levi. Nobody likes you because you are terrible. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, Levi, follow me. They didn't have to clean themselves up. They didn't have to change their lives to become worthy enough. They only needed to come and follow him. You know, I thank God for his grace. I thank him for the truth of Romans 5, 8, which says Christ demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have to get right with him before we came to him. We just came to him. We just said yes to his invitation to follow him. Jesus was saying to these guys, these tax collectors, you're not too far gone. Even though all the Jewish nation, all the Jewish people had written them off. These are horrible, treacherous people. These are people that, that we don't want anything to do with. We don't even let them into church. They're terrible. And Jesus was saying, you know, you tax collectors, you're not too far gone. In fact, you can't be so deep in your sin that I can't rescue you. That's what Jesus was saying. But we can't forget what the scriptures say before Levi followed Jesus. It says that he left everything behind. Verse 28, and he left everything behind and got up and began following him. Leaving his tax booth represents leaving his old life behind. And it happens all the time. People want to follow Jesus without leaving the old life of sin behind them. And although it's true that no one ever achieves perfection, walking away from that old life of sin involves an attitude change towards that sin. Repenting is a turning away from. A, and mark my words, just as grace and mercy can't be earned, how many know that that's true? There is no grace or mercy without repentance. Levi got an invitation that he didn't deserve. He didn't earn it by his good deeds. Jesus said, come and follow me, and Levi left everything behind. He just got up and walked away from everything in his old life of sin. And church, that's what we must do. We must say to Jesus' invitation, yes, yes, I'll follow you, and then leave our old life of sin behind and then begin to follow him. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And again, there's no such thing as being too far gone. I don't know if you're listening to us online today. I don't know if you're in here today and you're hearing this message of you aren't too far gone. I'm telling you, I don't care how many times you failed. I don't care how many times you fall into the same stupid sin that has you ensnared, that has you trapped. I don't care if you're suffering from, from that thing that just doesn't seem to get off of you. You know, you know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? You are not too far gone for Jesus to rescue you. You're just not. You're not too far gone. I once met a man here in church. Um, it wasn't on a Sunday. It was during the week. He had called in for food at that time. It was years ago. We had lots of, uh, we had a big food pantry that we did. And um, he, uh, he called and he said, I'm out in the parking lot and I need food. And I said, well, come in and get it. We have some for you, you know? And he, then he's like, well, you don't understand. Me and the big guy aren't really good, and I probably, if I came in, this, the roof would fall in. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because I, I just can't come in. I'm like, okay. So I went and got food and took it out to his car and talked to him for a little bit. And, and, and here was the deal. I, I found out weeks later, after talking with him more and giving him more food from time to time, that he was a vet in the Vietnam War, and he was a sniper. And he took out people with a scope, and he did his duty, and he didn't think because he was a murderer that God would ever allow him to walk into the church ever, ever, ever again. And I explained to him that that's not murder, if you didn't have malice in your heart, if you didn't, if you didn't have that, that hatred in your heart, if you were doing your job, and even, even if you were a murderer, God can forgive you. It, you're not too far gone. There is nobody who is too far gone. I don't care what you've been into. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've been involved with. You're not too far gone. Your life can change 
Jesus can rescue you. He can rescue you. There are no hopeless causes, no hopeless cases. Jesus' Jesus's invitation is to everyone. Liars, murderers, thieves, adulterers, drunkards, abusers, homosexuals, I don't care who it is, they're not too far gone. You know, you can turn on the news today, and I don't, I don't mean to get into your, your business at all. Okay, yeah, I do mean to get into your business. You can turn on the news today, and, and as Christians, we know what's right and we know what's wrong. We, we sometimes feel we have a corner market on it, and we see what people are doing across our country, some of the things they're doing, and we're like, oh, horrible people. Horrible. Tax collectors, sinners. And I don't necessarily know who you mean when you're saying horrible people, but I'm sure there's plenty to pick from when you watch the news. But we got to remember, nobody is so far gone and lost in their sin that the shed blood of Jesus can't completely redeem them. Nobody. Everybody say, nobody. Nobody. Even that person you can't stand because of what they do and what they've done. Nobody is so far gone and lost in their sin that the shed blood of Jesus can't completely redeem them. And that's hard for some of us because there's people out there we don't want to forgive. We don't want them to have an option to accept Jesus and and get right with him and go to heaven for eternity. We don't want that because we don't like them. Levi left that life behind. He repented, he turned away from, and he followed Jesus, and he did it at the drop of a hat. Sometimes I think the church just needs to say, come on, you're one of us. You belong here. We don't need to convince people that they're sinners, they already know. We don't have to convince people that they're wrong and how they're living and blah, 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 blah. We just need to say, Come on, you belong with us. Because none of us in here are perfect either, are we? So let's talk about some more foodie facts quick. There's another group of people that were in this passage of Scripture, and it was the Pharisees. We talked about the tax collectors. Let's talk about the Pharisees. Who are these Pharisees that we read about so many times in the Gospels? Well, these guys were a political religious party of Jews that came into existence shortly after the Israelites were taken into Babylonian captivity nearly 600 years prior to Jesus' birth. And understand that Jews were basically functioning as a theocracy that didn't have a king. After they were taken away, they're this theocracy, this nation that had no king. They had no place, they had no land for so long. Understand um, that the Jews were God's chosen people, led by God-ordained prophets and judges, and then they began to beg God for a king. They wanted to be like the rulers around them. This is Old Testament stuff. They said, God, we want a king too. We don't want to be led by prophets and judges. We want to be led by a king. Give us a king, God. Give us a king. And, And they wanted, again, to be like the rest of the world. So God gave them what they asked for, and it eventually led to their own demise as a nation. Here's a little side lesson here. We need to be very careful about what we ask God for, right? We need to be very careful about the leaders we want to rule over us as well. I think it was Ronald Reagan who said in his gubernatorial speech, freedom is a fragile thing and it's never more than one generation away from extinction. With no king for the Jews, there was this vacuum that was formed for leadership and power amongst the Jews. And so this group that became known as the Pharisees began to fill that void. Pharisee literally means one who is separated. And these guys were dedicated to the law of Moses above 
all, all the others. I mean, they were so dedicated. They followed the law that was given to Moses. All that scripture in, in the book of Exodus and all that stuff you read, including the Ten Commandments, all those do's and don'ts, that huge long list of what you have to do and what you don't have to do and blah, blah, and you read about it and all the sacrificing, the, the, the blood and all that stuff that's in the Old Testament. We're reading it, we get lost, and we're like, wow, well, this is crazy. These guys obeyed all of it. They separated themselves from the sin of the Levitical priesthood. Pastor Barry, what's Levitical priesthood? Well, let me explain that for you. The Levitical priests were those priests who worked in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. In the law God gave Moses, the Mosaic law is what we call that, they were to ordain priests and all those priests were to be taken from the tribe of Levi. Thus the Levitical priesthood was created. Twelve sons of Jacob, whose name was turned to Israel, changed to Israel. So twelve tribes of Israel, all sons. One of those sons was Levi. That's where all the priests were to come from in God's law. Is it only a coincidence that this man Jesus interacted with all these years later, like I said, 600 years later, that his name was Levi? I thought that was interesting. I don't know why, but it's interesting. Over time, many of the Pharisees became arrogant due to their obedience to the law of Moses. Man, they were, they were good people. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are good. <laughs> and say back to that neighbor, not as good as, not as, good as you are. These guys were so good, and they became arrogant about their ability to be good. They obeyed everything that the Mosaic law required of God's people, and they prided themselves on it. They became leaders amongst the people, religiously and eventually politically. And by the time Jesus came on the scene and was in the thick of his ministry, the Pharisees were like a ruling class over the Jews. Even though as a people, they were all being ruled by the Romans, these Pharisees like had this political pull with the Roman authority and they also had the religious uh, overseership or authority of the people. So they found themselves in a very unique position. And again, as a, theocrat a theocratic nation, as a theocracy that didn't have a king, these Pharisees, they sort of slipped into that place of honor by politically posturing themselves with Romans and religiously posturing themselves with the Jewish people. I just said that. And they loved their positions of authority, and they used the, their law-following ability or self-righteousness as a way to lord over the Jews and condemn them. They were the moral police of the day. How dare you do that? Noses in the air. Prideful. And let me say this, some were probably good-hearted and wanted to do right. I think that there's examples of that in Scripture. But I believe the Scriptures also bear out that many of them became addicted to their political power and authority as religious leaders. So much, in fact, that you could call them spiritual elitists. Now, there's a lot of spiritual elitists in the church today. People who think they're better than everybody else. These uppity... Religious Pharisees were Jesus' biggest enemies while he ministered on this earth. They tried to trick him and frame him, and they even preached against him. They couldn't stand the fact that people were following him and that signs and wonders were being formed by, performed by Jesus. They eventually, as you know, had a major role in the crucifixion of Christ. They were the ones that really lined it all up so he could be put to death. They were pretty big stuff in their own eyes, but here's some spiritual meat that we can take from this exchange that Jesus had with them. Number two, there's no such thing as good enough. We just talked about there's no such thing as too far gone. There's also no such thing as good enough. Let's not turn our noses up at these Pharisees too much because let's face it, it is really easy in our efforts to live according to God's word to fall into the same trap as these Pharisees did. 
just, it's just human nature and it's inevitable. We hear the invitation from Jesus to come and follow him. So we leave our old sinful life behind and we follow him, right? That's what we do. And as we are living for Christ, reading his word, praying every day, going to church every time the doors are open so as to not neglect the fellowship of the believers, right? We're here every time the doors are open, amen? We're here every time the doors are open, right? Is that in faith or is that in reality? I'm just picking on you now. It's a good thing to be in church every time the doors are open. What's more important than hanging with your brothers and sisters in Christ? We're praying every day, going to church all the time, praising and worshiping all through our day, journaling about all that he's doing in our lives, witnessing to those around us. We're tithing, we're giving above and beyond the tithe to help those in need. I mean, we're doing it, we're living it, right? I mean, we're, we're, we be wearing all the Jesus merch. You know what I'm talking about, right? We're backing all the right political candidates. We were doing it. We've got the Bible app on our phone and our Spotify is queued up with a slamming set of worship tunes that are guarantee you the presence of God whenever you turn it on. We're doing it. But somewhere along the way, we, start, we started thinking of ourselves as better than those who aren't doing it. And I don't know when it happened, but maybe it was somewhere between listening to Christian podcasts and buying that honk if you love Jesus and keep texting if you want to meet him sticker, <laughs> bumper sticker for our car. You can get that for $7.99 on Amazon, by the way. <laughs> somewhere between those two things, we lost sight of the fact that we too were once lost. We were once lost. Have you ever looked down on someone who was still trapped in their sin, and if you were disgusted by them, then you just took one step towards being pharisaical, to being like the Pharisees, looking down on them because you are better. And even if you were born into a stellar Christian family and were privy to the truth of the gospel your whole life, you still were lost until he found you. That's the truth. You had to say yes to his invitation to follow, and once you did, you experienced a new life in him. So why is anyone else different? They're not. You can't be good enough in and of yourself. You were never good enough, and you will never be good enough to deserve or earn a place in heaven. Just the facts, you, you can't earn that. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All are sinners. Every single one of us is imperfect. We've all messed up. How many can say, yeah, that's me? Yes, yeah. But thank God for Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, and we know that. Death being eternal separation from God, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And let me just say something very unpopular in today's American Christian culture. I hear a lot about, we need to save this nation. We need to save this nation. Let me tell you something, there's only one way to do it. It's to lead individuals to Jesus. There's no political party, there's no candidate that's going to save this nation. The church must be the church and win this nation back to Jesus one soul at a time. America will not be saved by trying to govern morality by the right people in office. It won't happen. You'll get the right people in office and that'll be great and we'll wave the victory flag and then a few years later when it all shifts, it'll all go back to the way it was. The only way to change a nation is when the hearts change and that's the church's business. It's the church's job. It's our job. That's our job. One soul at a time. Win the hearts of Americans back to Jesus and you'll save this nation. Doesn't mean we shouldn't vote for the best candidates, doesn't mean that we should be extremely involved in those processes, but it's our witness for the gospel of Christ and not our condemnation of sinners that will get the job done. And just like the Pharisees of old, when we start thinking that we are better than everyone else, we will fall into the trap of politicizing the gospel and trying to manipulate people into right behaviors. You can't manipulate people into right behaviors. That's a heart change that has to occur. 
And only Jesus can do that. It will never work to try that. It's never worked in the past and it never will work. You see, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And if this is our song, how can we kick those who are still lost and still blind, how can we kick them to the curb and treat them as if they're beneath us, as if they don't belong in our group? You'll never be good enough to deserve Christ, but he will never expect you to be. His grace is sufficient, and his shed blood is more than enough to pay the price for your sins. His righteousness is ours. I can never get to the end of the truth of that. Because of what he did and not because of anything we did to deserve it. His perfection, his righteousness is now ours. And you've heard me talk about this a lot. His righteousness is our righteousness. We're righteous because we have his righteousness, not because we are so, you know, great. (laughs) Did I just do that in church? I don't know. (laughs) We think we're all that and we're not. He is. He is. That doesn't mean we live in this, oh, I'm so unworthy. I'm a terrible person. We don't live there. Because one drop of his blood makes you worthy. Makes you more than a conqueror. Makes you a victor. But you got to remember, that didn't come from you. That came from him. And the sarcasm that Jesus uses... Some people say sarcasm is a sin. Jesus used it multiple times. This is one place where he does. The sarcasm that Jesus uses when he's talking to these Pharisees is, it's just amazing to me. They're like, why are Jesus and his followers eating with those people? That's how I envision Pharisees to talk. And Jesus says to them, hey, you guys are, you know, you're all so healthy and you're so righteous. You don't need a hospital. You don't need a doctor. So I thought we'd treat the ones that are really sick, those really sinful ones who need our attention. He's basically calling them out as self-righteous, and they don't even know it. Like, you guys are so righteous, you don't, you don't need me. You're already, you've already arrived. That's sarcasm in its glory right there. So much, in fact, that the Pharisees are like, hmm, true. And remember what it says. His followers, Jesus' followers, were eating with these sinners too. It begs the question, are you eating with sinners? Or are you like the Pharisees and just a little too good for that? A little above that? I don't rub shoulders with those types. Foodie facts. So these foodies also heard Jesus teach a couple of parables as they were hanging out around the table or passing by with their condemnation and disdain for Jesus and him eating with those sinners. Who are these parables referring to? What was he talking about? And I like to call this group, and it's really the Pharisees again, the stubbornly satisfied. In the first mini parable, Jesus says, What seamstress or tailor would ever cut a piece of cloth from new clothing and sew it into an old garment that needs repair? You would never do that because you would destroy the new and it wouldn't match the old anyway, not in color because of fading, and it it wouldn't hold up because the new hasn't gone through the shrinking process yet, while the old has. So you got this old garment, it's already been washed many times, it's shrunk, And then you cut off a piece of a new garment, wreck the new garment because you like the old garment so much you want to fix it. And so you wreck the new garment and you put that new patch in the old garment because there's a hole there. And then the new new patch doesn't, it it hasn't shrunk yet. So it shrinks the first time you wash it, but the rest of the garment doesn't. How many know what this is talking about? And so then because of where you stitched it, it's shrinking, it pulls the stitches away and it makes the old garment that you were trying to fix even worse than it was before you fixed it. Following me? That's what Jesus was saying. And then he talks about wine and wineskins. He says that 
everybody knows that you don't put new wine, which is fresh grape juice, into old wineskins. And really because there's yeast cells in those old wineskins that will cause the new wine to ferment and the fermentation process will put off a gas that will cause expansion inside those old wineskins and they won't be able to contain the new wine and both will be ruined. They'll burst open and the new wine will be lost and the old wineskin will be junk. So new wine must be put into new wineskins because they can stretch and handle the fermentation process. And that fermentation process can be really violent, right, inside that sealed, closed container. And it produces and it just blows up and boom, because that, that old, that old wineskin has already been through it with the wine that was in, in it before. So to put it through the same process, we just burst it open, then you lose both. What in the world was Jesus saying here? Where's the beef in this? What steak was he serving up to these foodies? And, you know, there's, there's a lot of opinions about these parables, but I think what he was really saying is there's no growth without change. There's no growth without change. Old garments can't handle new cloth patches because they won't shrink or change, so the new rips them even more. Old, and old wineskins can't handle new wine because the change bursts them open. The Pharisees and disciples, as well as Levi and all the tax collectors around the table, were being given an important lesson. The old covenant, the Mosaic law, all that these guys knew, everything that they had lived for, these Pharisees, all of it was about to change. In a short time, Jesus would die on the cross for all humanity's sin, and with his death and resurrection, the new covenant would be realized. Every person living would now have an opportunity to be saved, both Jew and Gentile. Everybody would have an opportunity to be saved. Those who relished in the Old Covenant, the Pharisees, they loved it, they would be confronted with change. How would they respond? Would they respond like an old garment that couldn't accept a new patch? Or an old wineskin that couldn't contain new wine? I mean, the new patch is the gospel, church. The new wine is the gospel. No wonder, Jesus said, I, haven't I, have, I, I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners, because they could receive it. They were like new wineskins that you could pour new wine into because they were ready for change. They didn't like what was going on. And can I say this about sinners? We can sometimes look down at them and think we're better than them, but they receive, I'm going to turn this off and grab this thing. Check, there we go. There, is that better? Sinners can absolutely receive that new message so much easier sometimes than people have been hanging around a long time. I've said before that it's sometimes more fun to hang with sinners than it is to hang with church people because sinners are looking to change a lot of times if they're loved on a little bit, where some church people, I mean, they already got it all together, right? So, do they? <laughs> it's an interesting exchange here. Sinners, even though that knew the old covenant law, would welcome this change. But those that were self-righteous, the Pharisees, how would they ever see the need to change? I mean, they are good enough. They are stubbornly satisfied with what they have. No need to change. They knew God's word. They could quote the Old Testament verbatim. The last verse, it's so key to understanding both of these many parables Verse 39 says, and no one after drinking old wine once knew. For he says, the old is fine. That word fine is interpreted from the original Greek word krestos. And it literally means suitable or good enough. Why change? I'm satisfied. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. 
it's good enough for me. We like that song, but should we? Depends how you define religion, I suppose. But the Christian life is about change. Like caterpillars changing into butterflies, we must go through a metamorphosis. The old is gone, the new has come. For those that follow Christ, our whole lives are about conforming to his image, becoming like him, changing every single day to be like Jesus and letting that change come from within us. You can't change from the outside in, you have to change from the inside out. And if you resist that change, you will cease to grow in him. There's no growth without change. You will plateau in your relationship with Jesus if you resist change, and there's no growth. You'll just be there. Why are there so many people in Christendom, those that have accepted Christ, that have never led anybody to the Lord personally? Why? Because they settled. They said, well, it's good enough that I'm going to heaven. Why do I care if somebody else goes to heaven? Maybe they haven't said that, but have they said that with their actions? Oh, it's good enough for me. I'm good enough. I follow the law. These Pharisees, they followed the law. They were good people. I mean, they could name a lot of people that were worse than they were. Bad people, tax collectors. Good enough. It's good enough. I have a good enough faith. There's no growth without change. Is anybody hearing that? We don't need to become satisfied with certain areas of our life. And, you know, I know you come to church and you, you hear me preach and you hear others preach and teach in this church and you hear great podcasts and you hear the Word of God and you read the Word of God, but, you know, we, we fill ourselves with all this good stuff and then there's those areas in our life that we refuse to let go of and change. You can't justify it away. Don't become satisfied or come to a place where it's just good enough. It's good enough. I don't need to go any deeper into God. I, I, I'm good enough. Resisting change holds the door shut on growth. So what can we take away from this, the, the to-go box this morning, if you will? Let's be good foodies and take some food home with us, some of the, the Jesus served up in the story, and let's apply it. First of all, I want to say this. You are not too far gone, and neither are those that you love. You're not too far gone, and neither is your son or your daughter or that loved one, whoever they may be, your spouse maybe. They are not too far gone. They're just not. Jesus can still save them. Don't write yourself off and don't you dare write anyone else off. That person that you see on television raging against whatever, all that is right, don't you write that person off. Pray for them. Yeah, but they're sinners. So are you. We're just sinners who are forgiven. They have yet to find that forgiveness. Number two, quit striving to be perfect because you ain't ever going to be perfect. And quit expecting everyone else to be, too. I mean, just rest in Jesus. Your righteousness comes from him alone. You live righteously when you realize that once and for all, when you, when you totally understand that, that, that his righteousness comes from him and not from you, that your righteousness comes from him and not from you, then you can start actually living righteously. Living holy flows out of your love relationship with Christ, not your list of do's and don'ts. And three, let this be the start of something new. You know, you know what needs to change in your heart. Levi was forever changed that day, and I'm, I'm willing to bet that there were others as well. Levi became an integral figure within the church after that. He stopped going by the name Levi and began using his Greek name, Matthew. He wrote the book of Matthew, which is the only gospel that contains the entire Sermon on the Mount. He's very detailed. He wrote every word of it. And it made, that detailed personality made him good with numbers as a tax collector, but God later used it to write with great accuracy. 
And, you know, his book actually contains more scripture references, Old Testament scripture references, and how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies in the Old Testament because Matthew had a special place in his heart to reach the Jews. His book is really, if you, if you look at it as a whole, is designed to reach the Jewish people. A man who was a Jew, who was treated like garbage because of his own decisions, but treated like garbage, that Jesus said, come follow me, and his life was changed forever. You know he became one of the 12 apostles. I, and I want to challenge you today to make your to maybe make some of these changes a reality. You know, what, what, what change do you have to make in your life? There's no growth without change. Maybe you feel like you've been too far gone. Maybe you feel like somebody else is too far gone. Maybe you've been trying to be perfect, but there's no such thing as good and is good enough. You can't be good enough, so just rest in Jesus and know that he's good enough for you. No matter what that change is, I want to challenge you to lay, lay it down, lay that thing down that's keeping you from all that God has for you. Lay it down once and for all. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Lord, I thank you so much that you lived things and they were written down and we could look at them and pull out truths. God, I'm so thankful that we were not too lost, that you couldn't rescue us, that we don't have to try to be perfect in and of ourselves and and God, that you are in the changing business and we can change from the inside out. Lord, I ask you today to move on us. Solidify these truths that you taught to these people around the table. And God, help us live for you. We love you today and we give you our heart. We give you our mind, we give you our energies, we give you ourselves. And God, even as we, many of us go to growth groups tonight, I pray that discussion would continue and that we could pull even more truth out of these scriptures. God, you are awesome in our lives and we love you. We're thankful for this church and we're thankful for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.